0: You're listening to the Barefoot Courage podcast, where we're hoping to cultivate a mindfulness of the majesty of God in everyday life. Hey, everybody, I'm glad you're here. This is episode number two, and we're talking about defining your fight. This is a super important topic for all of us. We live in a culture that venerates warriors. We all want to be tough. We just do. When people are pressed up against hard things or life-threatening illnesses, we comfort ourselves by saying things like, he's a fighter or she's fierce. But all of that is vain conceit and shallow talk if we don't stop to seriously consider the nature of the fight. If God is telling us in his word to do battle, and he is— it is a more serious thing than self-help, bravado, and trash talk. I promise you the enemy of our souls is not intimidated when we bounce around like boxers in a ring sporting our She's Fierce t-shirts and relying on our own strength to fortify our own kingdoms. Knowing how to fight well starts with defining what you're fighting for. And that struggle, the the struggle to define the nature of the fight, it became very real to me. almost three years ago now, when I was going through cancer treatment, and I got this t-shirt. It came from the oncology center where I was getting my treatments. And the tradition was that after you finished your you know, your course of chemo, um, you got this celebration bag. It was just sweet and encouraging. And, and I'm a big fan. But one of the things in the bag was this t-shirt. And on the front of the t-shirt, it said, fight cancer. You have to imagine this now, the, the I and fight and the C-A-N and cancer were highlighted in a different color so that when you glance at the t-shirt, your brain processed it to read, I can fight cancer. Y'all, that t-shirt made me think really hard. I would stand and look at it in my closet and I would think, but I don't know how to fight cancer. And it would have been vain conceit. And shallow talk. If I were to act as though I were up walking around because of my superior strategy or my strength to fight cancer, false. I didn't show up to to my infusions with any more cancer fighting ability than the woman next to me who was told that treatment wasn't working. We were all doing all that our little teams of humans knew how to do. But I knew two things, and those two things shaped the way I thought about that season and every season since. First, I knew that God could say a single word and that disease would go away. And second, I knew, biblically, that I was called to fight the good fight. Now, those are true statements about anything you're facing. With a single word, God could change the situation, and you're called to fight the good fight of faith. But we don't really understand how those two things are tied together until we really slow down and examine what it is that we believe and what it is that we're fighting for. So I just want to look at those things more closely. So when we say that God can heal with a single word, what we're saying is God is powerful and we love that. I think most of us love that God is more powerful than us because we know That we are no match for things like monsoons and tidal waves or terrible politicians and policies or prodigals or cancer or the devil. We love thinking about God being more powerful than the things that are more powerful than us. And the Bible tells us God is our defender. God is our good shepherd. And nothing comes to us except through the filter of his sovereignty. If you know the God of the Bible, you know that's a good thing. But this is also where I think that we are most likely to stumble. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I sometimes visualize it like this. God, the most powerful being in the universe, the most powerful being in the universe times infinity is standing between me and anything that would harm me. And as things fly my way, he filters them and the things that would be destructive to me, he just, he, he has the power to just send them away or hurling the, hurl them in a different direction. But sometimes things come flying in my direction and they, they, they get to me and they feel really harmful and they feel really destructive and they feel really scary. And I'm like, well, good grief, Lord, you let that one get by. Why? Why are we doing this? But here's what I know from spending time with the Lord in his word. Nothing just slips by him. God never looks over his shoulder and mutters, well, that was a swing and a miss. No, he is purposeful. He is the God who calls the end from the beginning. He is never surprised and he is never afraid. So, When the hard thing flies through your window and lands smack in the middle of your living room, as hard as it is, as unpleasant as it is, you can know with confidence that it didn't come out of nowhere. God is directing your path and writing the story of your life. He sees you and his sovereign goodness rules over every circumstance of your life. It's easy for us to embrace that God is powerful and that God is good. The hard thing for us to embrace about God is that he is wiser than us and he uses his power and his goodness in ways that we don't understand, in in ways that don't feel good to us. We want the thing that feels good and looks right to us, but his best plans for us involve fighting for something more. And that brings me to the second thing. I knew that I was supposed to fight the good fight. But what does that mean? If God only lets the things come to me that ultimately work for my good, then my fight wasn't ultimately against cancer. He would use it and then he would take it or he would take me when his purposes had been accomplished. So what's the fight? If the fight isn't against the big, scary thing that we're looking at on the horizon or in the middle of our living room, what is the fight all about? So I started asking him. I started asking him through prayer to help me understand how to get my mind around the fight. And he kept putting into my thoughts the mighty men who fought with King David. I believe that the Lord most often speaks to us through his word. And so, um, I went to the Bible. I went to to the passages that talked about the mighty men. That's what the Bible calls them, mighty men. And at least at once, they're called mighty men of valor. I just love that. Even if you are new to the Bible, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. David, the boy who was armed with only a sling and some stones and confidence in the Lord, took down Goliath, the giant Philistine warrior. Well, that's the same David who many years later becomes King David, the same David who wrote many of the Psalms crying out to God for help as his enemies chased him and and, and tried to take his life. So the abridged version of that story is that when he was a boy and by boy, he was old enough to help tend and protect his father's flocks out in the field, but not yet called a man. So Through the prophet Samuel, God anointed David as the next king of Israel, and he set the Holy Spirit on David, even though Saul was still on the throne. Now, David was not going to be king until Saul died. But for many reasons, which are not really relevant to our point right now, Saul was just very threatened by David and regularly over the years sought to kill him. Throughout that time, David had some mighty men who were fiercely loyal to him. But most of Israel fought with the king, King Saul. So finally, after years of strife, Saul was killed in battle against the Philistines. And after some time and a little bit of, you know, political intrigue, Israel and all of their elders go to David, who is staying in a town called Hebron. They enter into a new covenant with him and they anoint him as king. So in 1 Chronicles chapters 11 and 12, after we've kind of heard the account of of that, of the battle and and of David being anointed king, we are told about the men of Israel who came to fight with David. Now, the first ones named were those who had been loyal to David from the beginning or had, had even joined him right before Saul had been killed. But then about halfway through chapter 12. We start getting a list, this list of those who came to him in Hebron to make him king. Now, I'm going to go just down through this account and hit key phrases. I I really encourage you always to go read the whole passage for yourself. But just while you're listening, I want to punch some of these key notes. Starting in um, verse 23, it says, there these are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord the men of Judah bearing shield and spear the ephraimites mighty men of valor famous in their fathers houses the half tribe of Manasseh expressly named to come and make David king of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do of Zebulon seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. And then verse 38, all these men, men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. So you see, David had been chosen as king by God long before it came to pass. The elders then came and entered into a new covenant with him and anointed him king. The reality was that David was the king of Israel. And yet the warriors were there in full battle array to make him king over all Israel. Essentially, they were there to fight to keep anyone else from trying to take the throne during that tumultuous time in their nation. That all feels like foreshadowing of our spiritual reality, doesn't it? In in our lives, Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. He was the way chosen before the foundations of the earth. He put on flesh to redeem his people. He conquered death, put his enemies to open shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is king. There is nothing about that truth that is altered by what we think. And yet, we have to do battle every day to make sure that he is the king over our hearts. We have to be like the men of Issachar who had understanding of the times and knew what they ought to do. There are a lot of things that compete for the throne of our hearts. And the truth is that we like to sit up there ourselves. Here's how that manifests itself, I think, even in the hearts of believers. We love that God is powerful. And we love that God is good. And that looks on the surface as though we're worshiping him as king. But are we worshiping him as king? Or are we trying to call on him to use that power and goodness to give us our way as if we are the ruler of that situation? The answer to that question is revealed by our willingness or by our unwillingness to trust not just his power and his goodness, but his wisdom and his timing. So God could heal my body with a single word or send you that job or soften that heart. Whatever your hard thing is, he could fix it. With a word. But on the other side of that coin is that he could also say no. He could say a word and the disease could kill my body. And the question is if he chooses not to do what I think is good, will I sit on the throne of my life and accuse him of withholding good from me? Or will I embrace the fact that he is wiser than I am and he knows better how to define goodness? Will I trust him no matter what? Having faith isn't believing really hard that God will make everything work out the way you think is right. Having faith is believing that God is working in every single thing just exactly as it needs to be worked, whether you understand how or not. Faith is submitting to his will over your own, not out of disappointed duty, but out of delight in the only one who truly knows what is best and can satisfy your soul. The Lord doesn't just have a better view of the big picture. He sees the whole picture. He doesn't just make good judgments based on what he knows today. He saw today coming yesterday. He knows how today affects tomorrow and how all of it plays out for eternity. So he knows how the best thing will ripple through time affecting every person that it touches until we step into his holy presence, until we enter into his grace and stand before him acknowledging his majesty, a- a- acknowledging the perfect union of his power and goodness and wisdom, then we will struggle when he doesn't use his power to do the thing that we have determined is good. Friends, ultimately, your fight isn't to protect your job or to protect your health or your portfolio or to keep your kids from making mistakes. Your fight is for faith. Your fight is against self-focus. You are called to be a warrior who fights to make Jesus king over your whole heart and mind and life we have got to spend less time feeling proud that we felt, fed our kids avocado toast instead of cocoa puffs and spend way more time modeling trust and submission to the Lord for those around us. The enemy of your soul knows the stakes. The darkness in the universe is not as interested in making your life hard as in keeping you from trusting the one who fits you for eternity. We must resist the urge to fight harder to change our circumstances than we fight to be changed through our circumstances. Are you fighting to protect your earthly kingdom, which, by the way, is dying? Or are you fighting to rejoice in God's eternal kingdom where there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand? I want to give you three questions to help you just identify at any given time, whether you're worshiping Jesus as King, or whether you are sitting on the throne of your own heart. So first, ask yourself, is my prayer time being spent more on asking for the outcomes that I want, or asking for peace and pleasure in his plans? Two. Is my time, energy, and money spent more on winning the respect and approval of others or honoring and reflecting God's ways toward others? And three, do I find it necessary to understand his plan in this circumstance before I can trust him with it? If we are doing more to achieve outcomes that appeal to us than we are to cultivating the kingdom of God in our lives and in our families, then we're trespassing on the throne of the real king. And we're fighting from a position of futility. Back in 1994, John Piper made the observation that our culture gives us no guidance on how to wage war for the eternal life of our souls. He said, and I'm I'm quoting him, we are told how to wage war against AIDS, against sunstroke, against mosquitoes, against drunk driving and pollen and depression and rape and fire and theft and cholesterol and dandelions. But the world we live in gives no counsel on how to fight for the eternal life of the soul. Our modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. We are so oblivious as a culture to what will one day seem so obvious that we will call ourselves blind for not seeing it. Namely, the eternal well-being of the soul and its relation to God, end quote. I believe he's right, y'all. Conforming to our culture keeps us hung up on ultimately inconsequential things and using our energy to fight battles that are not ours to fight. The word of God draws the battle lines for us, Romans 12 tells us not to be conformed to the ways of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That tells us that enthroning Jesus requires us first to change our minds. So how do we fight the good fight of faith? I'm just going to start with these three suggestions to help you start to get your mind around the fight. One. We start by going to God and asking for his Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see his glory. We confess to him that we have looked at the world as though mankind is wiser than he is, and we have tried to hold him to our standard instead of acknowledging his superior standard. We go to him. We go to him and ask. Number two, we look for him in his word, the Bible, To fight the good fight of faith, we have to approach the Bible not as a guide for good living, but as a revelation of God's heart. That's what it is. The Bible is not primarily about us. It's primarily about God and how he interacts with his creation. If you want to see his glory, start in the pages of his word. So go to him in prayer. Look for him in his word. And number three, then go to his people. If you want to fight to stay off the throne that belongs to Jesus, then make sure that your closest confidants and your counselors are people who will search with you for God's ways rather than trying to help you master the ways of the world. Let your fight be defined Not by a desperate grasp for control, but for the faith to trust Jesus to define what matters. Whether you know it yet or not, you are in a battle, but you do not fight alone. Cry out to God for help. Look to his word for truth and find a friend who will walk the road of faith with you. Don't let anything else, don't let anyone else, including yourself, have the throne of your heart. Jesus is the only king, and when you start there, you'll take the rest of your steps in Barefoot Courage. Thanks for listening, y'all. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes come out and receive our our once-a-month newsletter, then you can go to barefootcourage.com and subscribe at the bottom. We will never spam you, I promise. Y'all have a great week, and keep seeking the majesty of God.